Well, my name is Pastor Mike Graham, and we've been here now as a family for about 10 months. And I've had several of you ask me, how are we doing? Are we starting to settle in? And the answer to that is yes. Uh, my son has been attending Bible Center School. He's in eighth grade. His name is Luke, and it's been wonderful. In fact, if you have young kids and you're trying to figure out where to send them, I would encourage you to check out Bible Center School. It's been wonderful. Uh, my daughter, Lexi, goes to John Adams, and we knew she'd be fine, and she's doing just fine. She just handles herself, so everything's been good for her, too. Uh, to give you an update on how I'm doing, <clears throat> I can now drive from my house on top of a mountain to here with no tangible anxiety. It's only taken 10 months, but I can do it now. Uh, some of you were born in the mountains, some of us were not born in the mountains, and driving on mountains freaks me out. Um, also, so far in 10 months, I haven't had a single family member fall into a holler. That was something else we were afraid of coming here, but so far, all my family members and my pets are okay, and that's a good thing. Uh, so today we come to the end of our Luke series, and we're gonna be in chapter 24, and we're going to read verses 13 through 33 together. So if you wouldn't mind, let's stand up together. <clears throat> Luke 24, verses 13 through 33. We're going to be reading about two guys who hook up with an unlikely individual on the way to Emmaus. Verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside of them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Jesus asked them, Where, what, are you dis, what are you discussing as you walk along? They stood still. Their faces were downcast, sad, glum. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Jesus says, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but did not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah, the Christ, have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So Jesus went in and he stayed with them. He went, he was there at the table with them. Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks and he broke it and began to give it to them. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures with us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So here we come to the end of our series on Luke. We started, I think, back in December. So we've been in Luke for a long time. And this passage here in the road to Emmaus is unique to Luke. You can't find it in Matthew. You can't find it in Mark. And it's really interesting. It fits really well into what Luke has been trying to teach us all along. So Jesus here has about 40 days left before he ascends back to the Father. So he has a little over a month. 
I was a personal trainer for about 15 years in Louisville, Kentucky, and during that time, I got to hang out with some CEOs and high-level executives who would spend decades building their companies and trying to achieve goals. It took a lot of effort and long periods of time. Jesus has a little over a month to start the greatest movement in the history of the world. Now, if I was his assistant, which I'm not and I wasn't, but if I were his assistant and he said, Mike, schedule some meetings for me, I would have sat down and penciled in Peter, James, and John a lot. Those guys need some work. Uh, there's the 11. I would have had him spend a lot of time with the 11. And then there's this little bigger crowd of disciples who are still in Jerusalem. They want to buy in. I would have Jesus spend a lot of time with those guys and probably with his mom. I mean, it's been a hard weekend, so spend some time with her. Jesus says, no, actually, I'm going to go hang out with these other two guys who've kind of given up. I'm going to spend the entire day with them on a road to a little town called Emmaus. I would respond and say, Jesus, are you sure that's the best use of your time? Don't you have bigger things to do? Don't you have more important people to hang out with? He says, no, I, I really need to spend time with these guys. Okay, well, how about this, Jesus? Why don't you go rent one of those fiery chariots from Gabriel, and we'll just fly you over there, bring some smoke bombs, come down, throw the smoke bombs, boom, I'm back, risen from the dead, get them back to Jerusalem, and return the chariot. How about we do that? Jesus would probably say, well, I've got two things for you, Mike. One, here's your pink slip. I don't really need your help anymore. These are terrible ideas. Uh, two, this is what I'm all about. I'm not just here to hang out with the people who are ready to go. I'm here to hang out with the people who are downcast, struggling, trying to figure out you know, where they're going and why they're going there. That's who I've come to be with. This is good news for us. As we hang out here together in this room, there's not one of us who has it all together. There's not one of us who isn't broken, messed up, made bad choices. There isn't one of us who doesn't struggle with doubt. Uh, we're trying to figure out what God has for us and where we're going. And that's the type of person that Jesus loves to be with, to spend time with, to hang out with. He loves to hang out with people like you and me. That's what we learn, not just from this passage, but throughout the book of Luke, we've been learning that Jesus loves to be with people that everyone else pushes aside. As Jesus was hanging out with crowds of people, children wanted to come forward, and the disciples said, keep the children back. Why? Because the culture didn't care much about children in that day. Jesus says, bring them forward, and he spends time with the children. Women were kind of pushed down and kicked to the curb. They were not valued in this culture. Jesus says, come be a part of my ministry. And he brings them in as friends, as companions. And he, had, and he respects women, and he spends time with them. Uh, whether it's a leper, whether it's an up and out, it's a tax collector, or whether it's a prostitute, Jesus spends time with people who don't know God, who don't even necessarily care about God, and aren't sure where they're going with their life. A lot like places where you and I have been at different points in our life. Jesus loves to be with people like you and me. Who was Cleopas? We have no idea. This is the only time he's ever mentioned in scripture. What about the other guy? We didn't even catch his name, right? It kind of reminds me of Dr. Seuss. You've got thing one and thing two. You've got Cleopas and thing two, just on a road to Emmaus. By the way, where's Emmaus? I looked up in my commentaries so I could find all these cool facts to share with you about Emmaus. We have no idea where Emmaus is. It's seven miles in some direction from Jerusalem. We don't know anything about Emmaus, so this is kind of like a small fish in a small pond right here. Cleopas is kind of a nobody, and the other guy, we don't even know his name, but Jesus is all in with them. He walks with them, and he hangs with them. For us, it's important for us to recognize Jesus' presence in our life. He walks with us. In the morning when you're eating breakfast, 
You can almost imagine that he's in the chair beside you. As you get into your car to go to work, he's there with you. When you're spending time with your family, he's part of your family. Jesus spends time with us. He walks with us. He's with us all the time. He's all in with us. But so often, like these fellows, we get distracted. Let's talk, let's talk together as, as young families. I maybe am not as young as some of the families out here. Uh, but as you have young kids, there's this push from society and from your schools and from other families to have your kids in as many things as absolutely possible. When that happens, what I find in my life, in my family, and in the lives of those that we care about is Jesus gets pushed to the curb. It is really hard to have your kids involved with 10 activities and allow your kids to have the time and the energy to walk with Jesus in their young lives. It's also hard for you to get time to walk with Jesus. So as young families, I encourage you to try to figure out a way to have time to be with Jesus, enjoy Jesus, acknowledge Jesus, acknowledge Jesus and not be distracted from his presence in the life of your kids, in your life, and the life of your family. One small rule we have as a family, and I'm not suggesting this is a new law that you should adopt, but we just let our kids do one activity at a time. Now they have to do it with all their heart, but we do one activity at a time because it's important to us to make sure they have time to hang with Jesus acknowledge his presence in our home and be with him. And we want the same thing for my wife and I. So we just, we're careful. So be careful. I'm just encouraging you to be careful as young families because what the world's telling you and what Jesus wants to experience with you are two different things. We also have this belief that on those bad days that we have, I mean, I'm probably not the only one who has them, but that day where you wake up and you kick your dog, you're already angry at your kids, they haven't even done anything yet, but you're already mad at them for some reason. Then you kick your dog again, and then you go to work, and you're just not very nice to your coworkers. You interact with your spouse, and just there's some friction. You get to the end of your day, and you just like throw your hands up. That was a hard day. You maybe had some thoughts you wish you hadn't had, some desires that you don't want to tell anybody about. There's a tendency within us to believe that on those days, Jesus doesn't want to have anything to do with us. But I want you to know whether it's your best day and you're so pleasant and you're so fun to be around, every thought is pure, every intention is perfect. On those days, Jesus loves to be with you. But equally, he loves to be with you on your bad days. Whether it's your worst day or whether it's your best day, Jesus loves to be with you every moment of every day. The question is, will you slow down, recognize his presence, and enjoy his presence? It's there for you to enjoy. Jesus loves to walk with us and be with us, just like he loves to walk with and be with these two fellas on a road to nowhere. Now, as Jesus is hanging out with these guys, he asks them the question, so what are these things that you're talking about that has happened? Their response is, Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet. That is a huge word. Sometimes in our lives, there's a moment when we either say a word or we hear a particular word and everything changes. For these guys, by saying this word out loud to Jesus, Jesus now is ready to jump on it and help them understand who he really is. When I was 16, I heard a particular word and it sort of changed, it was kind of a life and death situation for some things in my life. I was driving home from cross country practice. I was in my parents' Ford Escort. 1988 model. Uh, it was a very manly car. And uh, <clears throat> as I was driving home, I had my buddy in the passenger seat and I had one of the girls from the cross country team in my back seat. And I had to take her home. And to get to her house, I had to go around this 90 degree turn. 
now is banked, the, the turn is banked, and I'm 16, and I like impressing the people who are in my car. So what do you do? You go fast around the turn, right? So as I'm heading towards the turn, I've got cornfields on this side and then a little pond. On this side, I've got homes, so I can't really see what's on the other side of the turn. It's not a busy road. I'm taking the turn pretty fast, coming around it. As I'm coming around the turn, there's this older fella who's running towards me. So I have to like adjust. I'm still going fast because that's what's cool, but I adjust and I'm coming around the turn and then my buddy yells, duck! So I duck. So I'm coming around the turn and now I'm ducked. And as I'm coming around the turn, I look through the steering wheel down the hood of the car and I see all these little duck heads. Well, so, and the next, next thing I feel is this. And I sit up really fast. And I look in my rearview mirror, and behind me is this huge cloud of feathers, and this older fella in a pair of tiny little shorts going like this, yelling at me. And I can't repeat here what he was yelling at me, but we go a little bit farther. My friend looks at me and says, well, you ducked. And I said, I did. Uh, the girl in the back seat starts to sniffle, and she says, we have to go save those ducks. And we made an executive decision that we can't save ducks, so we just kept on going. Uh, but that one word made a huge difference. I misunderstood it, and the great duck massacre of 1991 occurred. So <clears throat> for Jesus, when he hears them say prophet, he realizes that they're not getting who he is. Here was their tendency, and it's the same tendency that we have. It's a lot easier to categorize Jesus, to make him something that's familiar, that's understandable, so something I can wrap my head around, something I wrap my arms around, kind of put them in a box that I can control. That's our tendency. That was their tendency. That's what prophet meant when they said it. So Jesus takes them back to the Old Testament. And if we had three hours together, we could walk through the whole Old Testament. I could show you verse after verse after verse that talks about who Jesus is in the Old Testament. But we'll just look at two verses if that's okay. So Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child. Let's just stop there for a second. A virgin will be with child. Already, all their categories have been obliterated. This doesn't happen. This can't happen. Okay? So he's more than a prophet. She will give birth to a son, and he will be called what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. So there's one who's coming, a Messiah, a Christ, a Savior. There's one who's coming, and he will be born of a virgin, impossible, and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Not a prophet with us, God with us. Let's go over to chapter 9. We'll look at one more verse. Verse 6 says, And a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders... And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There's one who will be born flesh and blood, a boy who will grow into a child, who will grow into a man. And this flesh and blood will be called Eternal Father, Mighty God. There's something coming that doesn't fit into any of our categories. And Jesus is making it clear to these two individuals that I am he, this this person, this individual who's both man and God, that's who I am. So what he does is he blows away their perceptions. Their categories can't figure out who he is. He's something new. He's the son of God in flesh and blood. It's easy to pick on these guys. They should have known better. They should have known their Old Testament better. These verses seem really clear. 
You and I tend to do the same thing to Jesus that they did. Their concept and their understanding of Jesus was way too small. You and I tend to have an understanding and a concept of Jesus that is also way too small. We tend to categorize him. We tend to try to make him familiar and understandable. It freaks us out if there's something in our world that's beyond what we can understand. So how do we do it? Well, I think one way that we do it is every morning, that reflection, that person you see in the mirror, oftentimes we use that to help teach us and give us information about who Jesus might be. That silly Pastor Mike, I would never look in the mirror and assume Jesus is anything like that person. Well, when you and I go to the voting booth and we cast our votes, most of us probably assume Jesus would vote the same way we do, don't we? We just do. When you came to church this morning, you figure out what you were going to wear, whether it's with a tie, without a tie, with a coat, without a coat. You and I probably assume that Jesus would wear about the same level of clothing that we would wear. We just make that assumption. If you and Jesus were going on a road trip and you let him sit in the passenger seat and you said, go ahead, take over the radio. Most of us have the assumption that he's going to turn on the same radio station that we like to listen to. Some of us think Jesus really likes country music. I don't know if that's true. There's a few of you who probably think that he actually wrote the song, Take Me Home Country Roads. Again, I don't know if that's true either. Uh, and when it comes to big issues like alcohol, like these are gray areas like alcohol and dancing and gambling, most of us kind of land in a position that makes us feel comfortable within that gray area. Most of us believe that Jesus would land in the same place that we do. That's our tendency. We tend to think the reflection in the mirror in the morning is a good indicator of what Jesus is like. Jesus showed up with these two guys and said, you need to start all over. You need to look at the Old Testament with fresh eyes. We need to continue over and over again to take our perception, get rid of it, and look at Jesus with fresh eyes in the New Testament. If we spent a bunch of time in the Gospels together, we would go through, just like Jesus did with them in the Old Testament, and have to reorient ourselves to who Jesus really is. He's very much not like us. Throughout his entire ministry, who did he spend time with? He spent time with people who didn't know God. Who do you and I spend time with? How much of your time is spent with people who don't know God? I'm not talking about at work when you have to. I'm talking about when you choose to. How much time do you spend with people who don't know God? Jesus spent a lot of time with them. In uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 50, it's a really interesting verse. In Luke 12, 50, he's talking about the coming crucifixion. In that verse, he calls it a coming baptism, but he's referring to his crucifixion. And he says, until it comes, until it's over with, how distressed I am, how distressed I am. Jesus here does a couple things, which is probably different than us. One, he's aware of what's going on inside of his heart. He is distressed. The cross is, in, is a distance away. It's chapter 12. The cross happens in chapter 22 and 23. Jesus is already sensing inside of his heart distress and anxiety is welling up. He feels pressure of what is to come. He's aware of it, but then he also acknowledges it. He talks openly with the people around him. He's open. He's authentic. Just the thought of what is to come is affecting my heart. And he shares that with the people around him. Are we aware of what's going on inside of us? And if we are, are we willing to be open about it, especially if it's kind of a negative thing, especially if it's, it's something that we sometimes are just embarrassed about. Jesus just says it. So Jesus is in the distance, he sees the cross, and he's already distressed. When he's at the foot of the cross, he says, I am overwhelmed to the point of death. Will you pray for me? Are we like Jesus? Or perhaps is he different than us? 
quite a bit different than us. In, uh, in Luke chapter 7, it's also another really interesting verse. In verses 33 and 34, Jesus has a crowd around him. There's some Pharisees and there's just some regular people. And he says, verse 33, Now John the Baptist came, not eating, not drinking, and you all said he had a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say he's a glutton, he's a drunkard, he's a friend of sinners and tax collectors. At that moment, Jesus' goal was not to defend his reputation. Jesus is simply stating out loud that no matter what you do, whether you eat or you drink or you do or you don't, in your point of view, we're going to lose. If you and I were in that position, we would probably go out of our way to protect our reputation. I mean, I'm a pastor, and I've spent time with some of you. A lot of us don't go within 100 feet of a place where somebody might say that we've had too much to drink. We won't go 50 feet you know, from some place where somebody would question who we're hanging out with. We're really careful with our reputation. Jesus is not concerned with that. I don't care if you call me a drunkard. I don't care if you say I spend too much time with sinners. My concern are people that are hurting. Jesus invested his time in people who were hurting where they were at, no matter what they were doing, because he loved them and he hung out with them. That's the type of savior that we serve and we follow. Perhaps he's a lot different than you and I. So often we get more focused and concerned on our reputation than the people who we're loving. Jesus had his priorities right. So as we get to the end of that section that we read, in verse 33 and verse 32, after Jesus takes their perspective of him, crumples it up, tosses it, and teaches them who he really is, their response is this. Wasn't your heart on fire when he was talking to you? Wasn't your heart ablaze? They were changed internally. And what did they do? They got up and returned to Jerusalem. It's evening, so it's dark. Jerusalem's on a mountaintop, by the way, so you're going uphill, and it's seven miles away. You got on sandals. So for them, they said, I want so badly to be with this Jesus, I will strap my sandals on, run uphill, seven miles in the dark to be where Jesus is. So when our perceptions of Jesus are tossed to the side and we see him for who he really is, it changes you on the inside and changes your actions on the outside. Don't let your Jesus be too small. Don't let your perception of Jesus guide you. With fresh eyes, go to his word, hang with him, acknowledge his presence, and be overwhelmed with a burning heart and feet that love to move to wherever Jesus is calling us to be. That's how the disciples responded. Lord willing, that's how we respond. So their understanding of Jesus was a bit too small, and Jesus handled it. Also, their understanding of the gospel, their understanding of the their understanding of the good news of why Jesus came was also too small. It was a little bit too shallow. When they talk about what they were hoping to see happen, their words were, but we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What were they hoping for from this Messiah, this Christ, this King, this coming King? We were hoping that he was the one who was going to come in Redeem means to pull out of slavery, so to pull Israel out of slavery to Rome and give us our own land. That's what we hoped he was going to do, but we're so discouraged because he didn't do it. We went ahead and left Jerusalem, and we're heading to Emmaus. Again, we don't even know where Emmaus is, but they've just given up, downcast, sad, glum, and we're heading out of the city. So if you know Israel's history, over and over again, God would bless Israel and give them their own land and their own ruler. What usually happened? Was it a good thing? Did we see them all of a sudden get super excited about worshiping God? 
No, the opposite happened. Every time Israel had their own land and received these incredible blessings of God for security, for comfort, for convenience, for ease, their hearts would drift from God. Inside of them, they had these hearts that would drift, they would wander, and they would harden against God. They began to worship his blessings and be thankful for his blessings and turn their back on God himself. That was their tendency. So Jesus, when he came, he didn't come to redeem them from Rome. That wasn't their biggest issue. Rome wasn't their biggest enemy. Their biggest issue was their wandering heart. Their biggest enemy was this sin that drove them away from God. Jesus didn't come to redeem Israel from Rome. He came to redeem hearts from sin, which is why he came. Their understanding of the gospel was way too shallow. They thought their biggest need was something outside of them, when in actuality, Jesus said, your biggest need is inside of you. How about us? Uh, I love to say it's just them and we fix this problem and we get it, but so often we don't. Their words were, but we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. If we honestly listened to our own hearts and our own prayers and our own thoughts, what would our words sound like? Oftentimes, mine and I think some of our words would sound like this but I had hoped he was the one who was going to fix my messed up family. We had hoped he was the one that was gonna help me manage my life. I had hoped he was the one that was gonna bring that companion into my life who would become my spouse and give me the, the family I've always wanted. We had hoped he was the one that was gonna move me into that right neighborhood and get my kids into the right schools that they go to the right colleges. I hoped he was the one that was gonna do that. I had hoped he was the one that was gonna fix me when I heard that diagnosis. I thought he was the one that was gonna fix these relationships that are crumbling all around me. We get really, really focused on thinking Jesus came to fix our circumstances and our situations. And those are important, and he does care about those things. In Matthew chapter six, he says, I know your needs and I will take care of your needs. But the question is, what is our greatest need? Jesus knows our greatest need. Jesus didn't die on the cross just to make our circumstances and situations better. In fact, when that does happen in your life, when you go through those phases of life where you experience peace and you kind of shift it into cruise control and everything's going your way, are those the phases of your life where you grow the most spiritually? Rarely, rarely. Usually when there's some turmoil, when things are a little rough, when challenges come in, when situations and circumstances aren't going the way you want them to go, that's when we tend to grow spiritually. Jesus didn't come to fix what's outside of us. He came to fix what's on the inside of us. Jesus died on the cross and bore the wrath and anger and consequence of our sins on himself that he could offer to you forgiveness. If we place our faith in him as Lord and Savior, which you can do today, he forgives you 100%. At the end of this service, some doors right back there open up and we have some pastors who would love to pray with you. If you'd like to talk to them or any of us about what it means to have a relationship with God, we would love to have that conversation with you. It could be the most important day in your life. But when Jesus saves you, okay, he completely forgives you, but you and I still have this heart that has some issues, right? If you spend some time, some little one-on-one time with you in your heart, what do you find? We still have some mixed motivations, don't we? We still have some intentions that aren't completely holy. 
We have some words, we have some actions in our life, we have some addictions, we have some tendencies in our life that are still sinful, where we still struggle. So Jesus didn't just, he didn't die just to save you, he died to transform you, to over time work on your heart and grow you and root out those sins. And that is a hard process. But he doesn't just save you and send you off and say good luck. Jesus saves you and he begins to go in this work, this process of transforming your heart to be more like his. The gospel isn't shallow. The gospel runs deep. It's an ongoing work between you and the Lord and your heart to see it changed. So it's transformed to look more and more like his heart. The gospel is more about, isn't just about your circumstances and your situations. The gospel is about the greatest issue in your life and mine, and it's our heart. <clears throat> so as we understand that and we realize that the gospel isn't shallow, it's incredibly deep, we also need to realize that the gospel is wide, wider than what we expected. In Luke chapter 24, verses 46 through 48, Jesus now is speaking to these two guys along with all the other disciples. And this is what he says. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So the gospel goes deep. Every crevice of your heart, every nook and cranny, behind every door, the gospel goes there. But the gospel also goes to all nations. Jesus had to spend some time with these guys going through the Old Testament, explaining to them who this Messiah would be and what he would be like. Jesus doesn't do this here, but he could have also spent time going through the Old Testament, showing them that God's heart, God's intention, God's purpose was always for all nations. This wasn't a new thing. When Jesus said all nations, people weren't like, I wonder what that's about. If they had spent time in their Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 3, we're told that the enemy will be destroyed. In Genesis chapter 12, we're told that through the people of Israel, one is coming through whom all nations will be blessed. That message is repeated in chapter 22, 26, 28. When Joshua crosses with the people of Israel, the Jordan, he says that all nations may know. In Psalm 67, David prays out loud, may all the nations praise you, O God. May all the nations praise you. A couple Psalms over, Solomon says in a very similar fashion, may the earth be filled with the glory of the Lord. This is a heartbeat that just thumps throughout the whole Testament. All nations, all nations, there's one who's coming through whom all nations will be blessed. And if that's the heartbeat of the Old Testament, we see it applied and it happens in the New Testament. If it's the heartbeat of scripture, it needs to be our heartbeat. Do we get excited about not just the depth of the gospel, but the width of the gospel? If we buy into this, that we're about all nations, some of our perspectives, some of our priorities need to change. Now the gospel isn't just about my little world. The gospel is about my neighbors. The gospel is about my coworkers. The gospel is about my kids, friends, families. The gospel is about this city. I started buying into the fact that the gospel is about more than just me. It's this wide thing. When Jesus started it, it's the greatest movement in the history of the world. We get to be a part of that. The gospel is deep and the gospel is incredibly wide. On, I think it was Tuesday morning, I got to hang out with some of the guys at one of the men's breakfasts. And one of the guys there asked me, why did you come to Charleston? Why did you come to Charleston? And 
I never really said it out loud before. So I thought I should tell you, because I'm here with you now. You're stuck with me, at least for a while. Um, so why did I come here? When Matt Friend got hired on as the senior pastor, he sat down across the table from me. We both lived in Louisville at the time. And he said, I'm going to Bible Center. I'm going to be the senior pastor. You are coming with me. And I kind of giggled and I said, I am not coming with you. Happy for you. Good for you. Let me know how it goes. Why? Because my life was great. Um, I was in a position where I was getting to serve as a pastor in another church. I was in a career that I loved. I was with people that I enjoyed. Life was good. My kids had their schools and their friends. And I had a house that I liked. I almost had the house paid off. Like, I'm ready to go. I'm good. Like, we're, we're almost done. Let's just settle in. And then I came and visited here. And I learned a couple things. Bible Center is in a unique position. There are not very many churches across the country in a position like Bible Center. You have one and a half to 2% of this little population of Charleston comes to Bible Center and calls Bible Center its home. That's a nerdy thing, but that 2% piece, when you hit that number, you're in a position as a church to potentially begin to saturate your area, your city with the gospel, if the people buy in. If you have 2% of the population buying in to the depth of the gospel and the width of the gospel and going for it, you can literally begin to saturate a city with the gospel. There, as far as I know, no cities in the United States that have been saturated with the gospel. When I say saturated, I'm picturing a sponge that's soaking wet. Anywhere you poke it, water comes out. Lord willing, there's a day in our city, no matter where you poke it, whatever corner you poke, whatever tree you poke, whatever person you poke, gospel comes out. We're in a unique position to go for it as a church. There's a couple things we need to do to make that happen. One, we need to no longer have our own perspective on who Jesus is. The word of God, Jesus himself tells us who he is. And if that happens, our insides change and our outsides change. Two, we have to recognize that the gospel is always at work in our hearts. There's things that prevent us from going out and sharing the gospel. We have to go deep with Jesus and have him root those things out. Three, we have to go wide with the gospel. It's bigger than us. The Bible says, Jesus said, you are my witnesses. So we no longer have to view, our, we no longer should only view ourselves as disciples who receive God's word, but witnesses who give God's word. If we can get there as a church, if we can buy into that, this whole city could be changed. This is a capital city of a state in the United States. You turn a capital city, a state starts to change. Why am I here? Because I want to link arms with you. I want to pray for you. I want to pray with you. I want to go with you. I want to be in this city, seeing it saturated with the gospel. Good deeds, God's words, sharing Christ. We can do this. We really can. That's why I'm here. And every step of the way, as we're moving towards this, Jesus is walking with us every moment of every day. That's where it starts. Tomorrow morning, when you eat breakfast, realize Jesus is there with you. Acknowledge him. Get rid of distractions. Enjoy your Savior. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much just for your greatness. It was so fun to sing about you, Jesus. Worthy are you, the lamb who was slain. And Lord, I ask that you would give us the ability to see you, Jesus, for who you really are in your scriptures. Motivate us to go, not just be disciples who receive, but witnesses who give. Allow us to be a church that commits to the city, commits to this area of town, to our neighborhoods, to where we work, to share your gospel and proclaim the greatness of who you are. You are an awesome God, and we're so thankful to be your children. Uh, in Christ's name, amen.